dear friends in Christ. There's a frustrated man who lives in my neighborhood about three blocks from our house. I don't know all of his issues, but he has it in for autumn. He has a feud, a running feud with his neighbor's leaves. Every September, he lines both sides of his yard around his little split-level house from back to front with one of these four-foot-high orange mesh fences that in the Midwest we call snow fences. He runs them all the way out to the curb, and it's the most god-awful sight in the neighborhood. What's the fence for? Well, it is to keep his neighbor's leaves out of his yard. His battle plan is pretty simple. It's total defense. There's no tree in his front yard so that he can enjoy the oranges and reds and yellows of the maple next door and the burgundies of the ash tree on the other side. Why plant a tree in your own yard when you can enjoy your neighbors? When I last drove by this man's house, the site was a very sad one because he had erected an orange fence on the side but not along the curb in the front because that's presumably prohibited by city code. So here were these 30-mile-an-hour winds swirling tens of thousands of leaves into this man's front yard. The sight of all those leaves piling up brings new meaning to the verse, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Now, this battle of the leaves phenomenon must be pretty commonplace. A lot of communities, or Michael Winval, that storyteller, wouldn't have written a tale in his little book, Good News from North Haven, about this fall warfare. Winval's delightful tale tells of a Presbyterian pastor by the name of David Battles, who's coming home from church late one night, He's worked in a study after a Bible study which focused on this Jeremiah text, the 31st chapter. He's walking not along 25th Street in Bettendorf, Iowa, but Jefferson Street uh, right there in North Haven, Minnesota. Kind of a Lake Wobegon sort of community. He's coming upon Elvina Johnson's house, which is completely dark like all of the other houses and he notices a silhouette in the side yard. Now, Elvina's house was this beautifully white, immaculate little bungalow, manicured lawn to perfection, a three-foot-high white picket fence that surrounded it. And to give you a sense of Elvina Johnson's place in the community, which was an embedded one, she had been the director of the Christmas pageant for 50 years. The pastor sees this silhouette in the side yard with this repetitive action, picking up a bushel of something and dumping it over the fence into the neighbor's yard, which would be Ale Lundin's yard. Elvina, you're sure working late tonight, pastor says. Well, pastor, she says, winter's coming, you know, and you never can be ready soon enough. This was an odd response, given that her own house was completely dark. She was obviously raking up leaves, putting them in the bushel, and dispensing with them 
in the Lundin's yard. And she did not wait for any more questions before she mounted her defense. Well, they're the Lundin's leaves, she said. They're off that big red oak tree in their front yard. And every time the wind blows, half of them end up in my yard. And I know they belong to the Lundines because I have only one tree and it's a maple tree and it's in the backyard. I sort the leaves. I keep mine and I return theirs. It's only fair, Pastor. Now the pastor points out that Elvina Johnson, had she been completely comfortable with this interpretation of justice, it's extremely doubtful that she would be deploying it close to midnight when everybody in the neighborhood was asleep and when her own house was completely dark. Three days later, Elvina knocks on the pastor's study door. She sits herself down. Is there anything in scripture, she asks, about people being responsible for their own plants and animals? I know the Old Testament has all these rules about sheep and goats and whose land is whose land, but is there anything that might apply to my leaf situation? She knew that Ali Lundin was a Lutheran and he might pay attention to scripture, so hence the questions. She continued, it took hours and hours to rake those things up and to sort them. And yesterday, Ali Lundin, he put all the leaves back in my yard. He just dumped them, Pastor, right there in broad daylight, in my yard. It was then that the pastor learned from Elvina that she had hired a young man named Danny Olson during the summertime to mark every lee on her maple tree in the backyard. He had climbed this tree with a magic marker and put an X on every leaf. And she told the pastor it only took him two days. Elvina Johnson parked herself in the pastor's office, absolutely convinced that she had been wronged. There wasn't a shadow of doubt in her mind that the ultimate ethic of the cosmos was fairness. She yearned for a fairer universe. Now, fairness is a wonderful pursuit. It's an important value in our world. Scarcely a child would argue otherwise. And I know plenty of adults, devout Christians among them, who also flirt with that question of fairness. Just think of someone relatively young, let's say 47 years old, <laughs> facing stage four ovarian cancer. Or the flip side, perhaps yourself, looking at the beautiful family that's yours that seems to run so smoothly and you look at your relatives and they don't seem to get a break. Crisis after crisis, it's so painfully difficult for them to be family. And regardless of the situation, we ask the question, how did I get here? How did I get here? Fairness is a lovely idea to pursue, especially if you have to rake your neighbor's leaves or if everybody thinks your twin sister is so much younger than you are, or if you're paying taxes that you know are far less than someone who you know to be 
far wealthier than you are. But perfect fairness would make for a very flat world. It would only be as good as we are. And fairness is a great concept, but it will not make all things right, and it will not make all things good. You bank your every dream and your every hope on perfect fairness, and you will come up short in the end. You will. Because you'd have to trade in a world of grace, a world where God always gives us more than we deserve, and in the process of gifting us with that life, sets us free. And when we realize that God knows everything there is to know about us and about Elvina Johnson and that God still loves us even after all of that, that's what sets us free. Pursue fairness relentlessly. When you feel grieved, when you want to settle a score, and you will capitulate to a world of ungraciousness. A kind of meanness sets in in that situation, a vindictiveness, a search for the enemy, a delegitimization of your opponents. That's not a pretty world. It's not a gracious world either. And perhaps you've noticed some of that around you. The law in ancient Judaism, for that matter, the law in modern America, it may give the appearance of evil. It certainly does a whole lot to, to constrain or to limit. It may give the appearance of fairness, but it constrains evil for sure in many ways. But the law does not necessarily inspire compassion. It will not cause you to love people more. It will not make of us good and winsome people. The law doesn't work that way, and something wasn't working right with the law when Jeremiah put these words down in the 31st chapter of his prophecy. He starts talking about God having a new arrangement where God's law isn't going to be showing up etched on these tablets of stone, but it's going to be placed upon the human heart. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and all will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Something about the old form of the law or its delivery as a set of external demands, it wasn't working and Jeremiah could see it. It wasn't forming people into loving creatures. You know, those who could be filled up with that list of virtues that we want to have bubbling up from the inside of our lives. The old law merely demanded a kind of outward conformity. The prophet, the prophet dreamed of an inward fire, a fire that would set people doing things they didn't think they could do. A fire that could get people like Alvina Johnson and Ali Lundin and you and me beyond the obsession of always pursuing fairness when we think life has cheated us. God had grown exasperated with the people of Israel. 
because they had taken all of these incredible promises of God and all of their material wealth, and they started to treat these things as if they were their own. And when life wouldn't go their way, the cry would come out, it's unfair. So God cooks up this new idea. Jeremiah is the one to trumpet it. And forget all of the external strategies, if you will. The prophet Jeremiah says, we're going inside this time. On behalf of the Lord, I want changed people, not just changed behaviors. I want different people. So the Lord says, in effect, quit searching for that Bible verse that you hope will teach people to be responsible for their own plants and animals. And quit living as if the law is your permission or your encouragement to, to, to go out in self-righteousness. This is a new day. I'm going to write my law upon their hearts, says the Lord. I will be their God, and they will be my people. You're asking, why doesn't the Lord put the, heart, the, the law right into the heart? Why doesn't the Lord surgically insert the law into the human heart? Funny you should ask, because a student once asked the great Rabbi Akiva the same question. Why are we told to place these divine words upon the human heart? Why are we supposed to have these divine words set upon the human heart and not placed inside of the heart? And Rabbi Akiva, the great rabbi who interpreted the Midrash, that, that redaction of the Jewish world tradition, he says, ah, these divine words are placed upon the human heart so that when the heart cracks, they will fall inside. Who knows exactly what the people around Jeremiah thought of this wild new idea. They were far more comfortable thinking of the Torah as an external set of demands, nothing internal. And you know as well as I do that it's a whole lot easier to mess with the externals of life, the appearance of life, than with the interior pieces of our lives. Just like it's so much easier to remodel your house and paint the shutters and put on new siding and reshingle the roof and replace the, the broken porch railing, much, much easier than remaking the household beneath that roof where the people of that household actually love each other and are free and giving and reconciling and they know how to chip in together. The external stuff is always easier. The medieval church, it very successfully managed its external affairs, its vast properties, its very elaborate hierarchies and ornate organization, its excellent and expensive works of art. But the church in the Middle Ages was ripe for reformation because there was no renewing fire on the inside. Jeremiah is interested in God becoming a part of the internal character of our lives. The spark of our dreams, our decisions, our loves. It's not enough to do the right thing just because the law tells you to do the right thing. That's the bare minimum. We need to be about the business of praying for our hearts to be warm enough 
and soft enough and tender enough that in fact they're capable of breaking and allowing the word of the Lord to penetrate those hearts. Because when they break, when the hard-heartedness develops a crack, that's God's chance for entry. God's chance to get inside and help make us into new people. To reset our moral compass, to help love the Lord, not because we're obliged to, but because we want to, and because we cannot imagine a better life. Here's the thing. There's only one thing that can help us get there. Only one thing that can help us quit fidgeting with the externals, with all that play acting that goes on in the Christian life. There's only one thing that will help us stop living defensively. Only one thing that will end the dogged pursuit of fairness that we all go after when we feel we have been wronged. That power is called grace. And it is best embodied in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This Jesus who never spoke the word grace, at least in our record, never analyzed the word or concept of grace. He simply embodied it. It was part of his character. It shaped his whole being to be generous from the inside out. Grace does not make everything right. And grace is not fairness. In fact, its essence is unfairness. Prodigal son, the father of the prodigal son, he couldn't wait to practice profound unfairness. That's the essence of grace. It's the only power that has half a chance of penetrating the human heart, softening our hearts and finding the cracks. Try to practice religion or live the faith without grace and you and I will be groveling for fairness our whole lives long. We'll feel cheated and we will strike out in meanness at this ungracious world. But live with the transforming power of grace in your life and you will become so much more than your charm, your wits, your smarts. You will be so much more of a person than you would be if you had never met Jesus Christ. I recently heard John Dominic Crossan, that historian of early Christianity, offer a rather fresh definition of the word grace. He said, grace is like a free download of God's character. And I rather think that's about right. Because when you download a new operating system on your computer, everything on the screen gets shuffled just a little bit, right? It gets rearranged in a way that you hadn't anticipated. Our hearts are not the same when we allow grace to soften them up and for the word of the Lord to fall into the cracks of our broken hearts. We stop living as if fairness is the ultimate ethic of the cosmos. And we begin to live graciously from the inside out, 
in what is very often an ungracious world. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all human understandings, keep your hearts and mind in Christ our Lord. Amen.